0: Let's say somebody said that they had a belief system in which it was simply posited that carbon came out of, I don't know, a blue sky one day. That wouldn't make me feel any more meaning about who I was in the world. It feels much richer to me. To imagine that a cold, empty cosmos collapses with stars, and stars burn and shine, and they make carbon in their cores, and then they throw them out again, and that carbon collects and forms another planet and another star, and and amino acids evolve, and, and then human beings arise. I mean, that's, to me, a really beautiful narrative.
1: Jan 11 is a theoretical physicist who studies the shape of the universe and whether it is finite or infinite. And she's a physicist who's also explored her science by way of a novel of ideas. Her novel, A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines, centers on the lives and ideas of two pivotal 20th century mathematicians, Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing. Turing is known as the father of modern computing. Gödel shook the worlds of mathematics, philosophy, and logic, showing that some mathematical truths can never be proven. Both pushed at boundaries where mathematics presses on grand questions of meaning and purpose. Such questions helped create the technologies that are now changing our sense of what it means to be human. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Jan Levin is a professor of Physics and Astronomy at Barnard College. I interviewed her in two thousand and seven after the release of her novel. Many people talk about childhood as a time when we all start to ask, for the first time, we ask these great existential questions, like how did how did this all happen? How did we get mm-hmm. here? And I just wonder if you look back to your childhood, do you can you trace your curiosity um, in an, in a rudimentary form to some of the things that that fascinate you now?
0: Oh, absolutely. I remember asking Questions like that uh, about the origin of the universe and and what we were doing here and what it meant to be part of the cosmos. I, I didn't think I would go on to be a scientist. In fact, I started as a philosophy major in college. Right. And I was um, I was very negative about um, physics, especially. I hmm. had no physics experience whatsoever. But I had this kind of comical stereotype of physicists memorizing things and um, and being kind of rote. And I was thought philosophy was after the big questions. And it was it's very ironic when I look back at my childhood that I was absolutely mesmerized by cosmology and astronomy, even evolutionary science, ideas of natural selection. Mm -hmm. They had always uh, captured my imagination and, and were these gratifying sort of ways to think about the world, even if I didn't always understand the answers. It was sort of really a way to think about the world.
1: Was there science being discussed in your home?
0: Yeah, my father is an MD, and he, for a few years, was doing research science, um, medical research, and um, he always talked a lot about sort of scientific explanations for things. You couldn't, you know, say uh, you smelled something without it being a discussion about the molecules, <laughs> okay. and you know, the neurons firing and how neurons worked. And um, so it was kind of a natural way to talk in the house, although, again, I didn't over um, analyze that as a child. My mother was very literary and and read lots of books and was not at all scientifically inclined. So mm-hmm. I I didn't sense that my house had a sort of predominantly science right. Um, what, was there uh, approach?
1: A, was there a religious background? Um, no. She, no. Um, okay.
0: you know, in a sense, my grandparents were... Um, I shouldn't say no so abruptly. <laughs> my grandparents were immigrants, Jewish immigrants from Europe and, and Eastern Europe. And they grew up with a strong religious tradition. And my parents grew up speaking Yiddish. And my grandparents kept kosher until later in their lives when they kind of gave that up. So there was a sense of tradition, very strong tradition, and a very s- strong sense of our European history and our Jewish history. But I, myself, was never brought to temple. (laughs) I I didn't have a bat mitzvah and I didn't practice um, Judaism, actually, I would have to say. I mean, tell me how you made that transition when you went
1: to college and you were studying philosophy. How did you get captured by theoretical physics?
0: I, I think I hadn't really admitted to myself that I actually ha- loved science. And then I was in a philosophy class, and I, I was uh, sort of uh, impressed with the subject. We were talking about a lot of interesting things, free will and determinism, um, what it means to say we're free in a world that's completely, causally, physically determined. And there were all these very deep questions. And one day, a scientist came in to give a guest lecture. And they started to discuss something about quantum mechanics. And everybody in the room got very quiet. And they discussed things about Einstein. Right. And what I was most impressed with is that philosophers didn't know how to respond. So I thought it was powerful. And mm. I became interested in physics.
1: And I think that this book you've written about Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing takes place very much at that intersection where philosophical questions meet scientific inquiry and scientific
0: truth. Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, yeah, I definitely came back round again. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I came full circle again to start asking those philosophical questions, I Mm -hmm.
1: think. I mean, because this kind of, this basic question, I mean, let's start with Kurt Gödel about truth, right? And I mean, I want you to put this into Mm -hmm. your own words, because I I can't say that I I can completely wrap my mind around it, but I'm Mm -hmm. utterly intrigued with it. You know, Mm -hmm. that, that truth would ultimately elude us that that mm-hmm. some mathematical truths can't be proven within the realm of mathematics which doesn't necessarily mean they're not true
0: <laughs> yes that's right but that yeah. mathematics
1: itself can't demonstrate their truth
0: yeah that's right it was a time in history when most mathematicians i think it would be fair to say believed that mathematics could address every mathematical proposition, and that's a fair enough thing to believe in retrospect. Why shouldn't mathematics be able to prove every true mathematical fact? Mm -hmm. So when Gödel came along and he found a very surreal kind of tangle, a mathematical proposition that makes a peculiar claim about itself, which cannot be proven within the context of uh, arithmetic, it was in the context of arithmetic that he did this, it really shocked people, it really shook them up, and I think the way he said it is actually the clear dearest and and nicest way to say it, there are some truths that can never be proven to be true. And it opens up this idea, which terrified people, that there are limits to what we can ever know. Hmm. And it's not the first time it happened. If you think about Einstein's theory of special relativity, it was a similar idea. There are limits to how fast we can ever travel. We're limited by the speed of light. Um, There are limits in quantum mechanics to how much we can ever really know. There are fundamental limits to certainty. Mm -hmm. And this all sort of happened around the same period of time that we began to accept this. You have a lot
1: of scenes with Gödel uh, in Vienna. Early 1930s Vienna in a coffee house and a famous kind of intellectual gathering, which was called the Vienna Circle. And there, there's a scene where you have uh, there's a, this mathematician, Olga Hahn Neurath, and her husband, Otto, who's a socialist. And I mean, these are just some other people. Moritz Schlick mm-hmm. was a philosopher and a logician who kind of headed this. And they often just come back to Wittgenstein's premise, his first premise in his famous Tractatus, that the world is all that is the case, which which is a statement about a basic thing that we can know as real.
2: It is a fair question, he confesses. How do I verify a fact of the world? Such a simple question. Being honest... He can be sure only he sees. He can be sure only he touches. He watches Olga pull on a mammoth cigar. She has a calm about her, always at ease. The smoke drifts in curly plumes, sifting through her lashes. She doesn't seem to mind, and even tends to hold the burning cinder vertically and uncomfortably close to her eyes. But what really arrests Moritz... What keeps his fingers in a frozen clutch around the cup, coffee suspended near his chin, is this question. Does Olga exist? He hangs there for what seems like a very long while. The conversation stalls, suspended along with the coffee. Olga? Yes, Moritz, I'm here. She reaches over and hooks his thumb with her forefinger. The rest of her fingers scramble over to clasp his hand. But all Moritz concedes is that he can feel what he has learned to describe as pressure on what he believes to be his hand.
1: In the story, in the novel, all the members of this circle who are sitting at the table with him start to question almost whether they themselves are real, whether the person who's sitting across the table from them is real. And as a reader, I had that same experience. <laughs> and I just, that's beautiful. It's yeah. wonderful. And so, I mean, I wonder if you would kind of describe that scene the way you envisioned it and, and, mm-hmm. and what's happening there for you.
0: Well, I really hoped that the reader would have that experience because ultimately, I think that's where the book nudges. Do you know that any of this is real, that the book isn't a figment of your imagination. Even and the book itself, right? <laughs> the book itself, that somehow you aren't the author of the book itself. <laughs> right. um, and so he was definitely pushing on that limit of what do we know and what don't we know, what do we take to be faith, what's rational to believe, what's not rational to believe. And what is um, it that he
1: says and, that, and 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 how is it that it is so shattering you know, to them and to
0: us? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. There's a little twist there, which is that Godel, even though he proved something which is absolutely correct about mathematics, had beliefs which most people do not take to be true and <laughs> and, and struggle with. Right. So his his mathematics is confirmed and everyone agrees is was tremendous. and yet when we look at his ideas about the transmigration of the soul and his ideas about external reality being questionable, he really was suspicious about an external reality. The only reality he trusted was the mathematical reality well, he could kind of probe logically yeah, numbers with his mind. were more real than possibly the person then, sitting across the table from him. that's right. Hmm. that's right. He mm-hmm. believed that numbers were more convincingly real than uh, you know the idea that the sun was real when it was when, it, when you couldn't see it anymore after it had set. And, um, and so his idea about an empirical reality was strange. Was he, he wasn't sure it was, he could believe in it. And most people, I think, aren't struggling with those issues and so find, find it hard to follow Godel down that path.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And yet his mathematics was absolutely sound and shattering. And I think at some stage I realized that what I was writing about wasn't so much mathematics. What I was really writing about, which I think you've struck on, is belief. Mm-hmm. what Gödel believed, what the people in the Vienna Circle believed, how they all ultimately struggled with different ideas about reality. And there's this sort of surreal vagueness to our conclusions. You know,
1: you you write of both Gödel and Turing that they were besotted with mathematics. And I have to say that I, I feel that you, I don't know if you're completely like them in that way, but you have a real sympathy for that, you know, the way you seem to delight in just in the way they... They live with mathematics and wrestle with it, and um, is that true? I mean, for you, are numbers maybe not more real than the sun and the earth, but as real as the sun and the earth, and, and, you know, so what what does that mean exactly? How would you explain that? Well, I would
0: absolutely say I am also besotted with mathematics. I don't worry about what's real and not real in the way that that maybe Gödel did. I think what Turing did, which was so beautiful, was to have a very practical approach. He believed— that life was sort of in a way simple and you could relate to mathematics in a concrete and practical way and it wasn't all about surreal abstract theories and that's why Turing is the one who invents the computer mm-hmm. because he thinks so practically. He can imagine a machine which which adds and subtracts, a machine which performs the mathematical operations that the mind performs and the modern computers that we have now um, are these very practical machines that are built on on those ideas and so I would say that like Turing... I am absolutely struck with the power of mathematics and that's why I'm a theoretical physicist. If I want to answer questions, I love that we can all share the mathematical answers. It's not about me trying to convince you of what I believe or of my perspective. We can all agree that one plus one is two and we can all make calculations that come out to be the same. Whether you're from India or Pakistan or you know Oklahoma, right. we all have that in common. and So there's something about that that's deeply moving to me. And that makes mathematics pure and special, and yet I'm able to have a more practical attitude about it, which is that, well, we can build machines this way, and there is a physical reality that we can relate to um, using mathematics. Maturing also,
1: in his own way, um, explored the limits of our ability to know and prove what is true, didn't he? I mean, Is that a
0: fair statement? Yes. He went beyond Gödel, even, and realized that, in a sense, most numbers aren't numbers about which we can know anything. (laughs) And that seems very confusing. It seems like we know a lot of numbers. One, two, three, four, five. It seems like we know infinite lists of numbers. What Turing showed is that there are numbers uh, which are so long, if I imagine them as a decimal point with a list of digits, that that list of digits is infinite and essentially random. And there are numbers about which we will never know anything. And it leads to very um, strange things, which even sometimes I think about in my own research, which is, um, are those numbers real in any sense, or are they just uh, a mathematical construction? Is there no physical object which will ever be described by such a, what he called, uncomputable number?
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation about mathematics, purpose, and truth with physicist and novelist, Jan Levin. I was very interested also that you wrote that even, I mean, Turing is known as the father of modern computing, and yet, of course, lot, many people and developments played into that, into what we have today. Um, You wrote, though, that he wanted to design machines that could think. And for him, even in that very early stage, he wasn't just talking about computers that would have knowledge programmed in that would be able to play chess, Um, which Mm -hmm. is, in fact, the way the field of artificial intelligence really uh, began in many ways, really was for a few decades. Mm -hmm. Um, But he actually had the vision towards which a lot of artificial intelligence I know at MIT is moving, which is what we want to do is create computers that can think that can learn the way human mm-hmm. beings learn i wonder if you uh, had any thoughts about that that contradiction in what he believed in, and then the way the field developed
0: well there is a really interesting point that can be found in a way in their discoveries If you think of mathematics as a rigid system where you have some rules and you start at some starting point and you always follow those rules to generate theorems, that is essentially what a formal mathematical system is. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can prove that there are true facts that can never be reached by such a formal process, then any computer that you program in that way by just teaching it a handful of rules, it will only be able to do a certain limited number of things. It can never prove these kinds of unprovable statements, Mm. fine, but the difference between the human mind is I can recognize the truth of a statement even if I can't prove it. (laughs) And that is something that I can't do if I only program a rigid system to follow rigid rules. And so our minds seem to be doing something that's different than what a formal mathematical system does. And so it's very rooted in their theories, Um, the things that both Godel and Turing proved, that if I only program a computer in this way, I can never get it to do the things that a mind can do. And they knew that. Um, I think Godel said that um, he imagined an artificial intelligence evolving, not so much being programmed. And so I think one of the interesting ideas in artificial intelligence is to try to do something similarly, um, start a digital organism, so to speak, and a digital ecology and see if you can't evolve an intelligence. And it is true, I think you mentioned that um,
1: that Gödel believed in the transmigration of souls, but Turing, by contrast, um, lost a faith that he did have early in life. And he really came to think of us as human beings, as kind of biological machines.
0: Yeah, I think that was a very important moment for Turing. And I tried to describe it very sympathetically. I think there's mm-hmm. a, a lot of feeling that if somebody loses their religious faith, that it would be this dark and horrible moment. It, would, it could only be associated with a kind of tragedy or, or despair. And I wanted to explain his, as, describe his as being a beautiful moment for him. Because he had been grappling with such inconsistency Mm -hmm. between his logical naturalist approach to the world, which was verifiable, which he really did deeply relate to, which was everything to him, and his religious um, disposition, which wasn't gelling with the former, with this naturalist approach. And he just couldn't get them together. And I think there was a constant rub and feeling of discomfort and struggle with it. And when he accepted a more materialist approach in the sense of there is just nature, there's just mathematics, there's just this sort of organic um, reality, that he became freer and and happier, and his life became easier. And it was a beautiful moment for him.
1: Right. And, you know, initially you mentioned the word beauty. and, And I have to say that something that's always fascinated me in conversation with scientists, and I'm thinking of George Ellis, the cosmologist, as one example, where I really can hear his voice again, that... The beauty of of a mathematical equation. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, it's funny. I think. Uh The scientists are the last ones to get away with talking about beauty. I don't think um, artists with a straight face can really talk about beauty anymore. It's just it's not chic. (laughs) Right. um, And um, not even writers can talk about beauty. It seems corny. And so only scientists can with a straight face talk about things being beautiful, being seriously motivated by aesthetics, and having it actually pan out. I mean that's quite remarkable is that people have literally pursued theories because they're more beautiful Hmm. are more elegant, and they make predictions that are later verified in experiments. So it's, it's a fascinating um, question. Why is beauty an actually good way of devising um, our ideas about the universe? Why are they confirmed by nature? Why does nature choose beautiful uh, ways of of unraveling and i mean you know Um, just you know echoing what we were
1: speaking about earlier mm -hmm. on about you know truth and you know getting back to girdle and turing i mean i remember um someone saying to me and maybe it was george ellis maybe it was john polkinghorn the physicist saying you know if an equation is not elegant and beautiful it is likely not true
0: (laughs) 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 well that that does seem to be the case I mean, you could say we can't recognize things that aren't beautiful, but it's really deeper than that. It's really deeper than saying, oh, I only picked out the pattern. Mm -hmm. You can imagine um, the particles of the universe falling into a symmetric pattern as one um, particle physicist did, and one was missing from this beautiful symmetric arrangement, and he conjectured the existence of that particle, and lo and behold, it was confirmed. So it's really something more than just saying, oh, we can only pull out the pattern and we miss everything else. So I want to pose a question to you that you pose in in
1: different ways to Turing and Gödel, or you have them contemplate in the novel. And I'll say it this way, you know, in your mind, does the fact that one plus one equals two have anything to do with God? Um, are you asking me that question? Yeah, I'm asking you that
0: question. Well, I'm asking you how I can, you think about that. It's, I am, oh, you're tough. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it raises... If I were to ever lean towards spiritual thinking or religious thinking, it would be in that way. It would be, why is it that there is this abstract mathematics that guides the universe. The, the universe is remarkable because we can understand it. That's what's remarkable. All the other things are remarkable too, hmm. but it's really, really astounding that these little creatures on this little planet that seem totally insignificant in the middle of nowhere, we're not special, we're not in a special place, can look back over the 14 billion year history of the universe and understand so much, and in such a short time. So I think that that is where I would get a sense, again, of meaning and of purpose and of beauty and of being integrated with the universe so that it doesn't feel hopeless and meaningless. Now, I don't personally invoke a god to do that. But I can't say that mathematics would disprove the existence of god either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's just one of those things where over and over again you come to that point where some people will make that leap and say, I believe that God initiated this and then stepped away, and the rest was this beautiful mathematical unfolding. Yeah. And others will say, well, as far back as it goes, it seems to be these mathematical structures, and I n- don't feel a need to conjure up any other entity. Right. And I think I fall into that camp and without feeling, again, despair or dissatisfaction. Um, and yet I understand why other people make the other jump. Mm-hmm. We tend to think
1: of time like a straight arrow, always moving forward. But Einstein called that a stubbornly persistent illusion. And Jan Levin's novel, A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines, is structured to evoke time the way physicists know it, as relative and curved, with past, present, and future in a fluid interplay. She occasionally brings herself into the story, commenting from modern-day New York City. She writes in one passage, in the park, over the low wall, there are two girls playing in the grass. Giants looming over their toys, monstrously out of proportion. They're holding hands and spinning, leaning farther and farther back until their fingers rope together, chubby flesh and bone meshed. What do I see? Angular momentum around their center. A principle of physics in their motion. A girlish memory of grass-stained knees. I am on an orbit through the universe that crosses the paths of some girls, a teenager, a dog, an old woman. I could have written this book entirely differently. But then again, maybe this book is the only way it could be, and these are the only choices I could have made. This is me, an unreal composite, maybe part liar, maybe not free. I sense that that what you know about mathematics and the kinds of ideas that you spend your life with do leave you with a real nagging question about human
0: freedom, about Mm. free will. Absolutely. Talk to me about that. (laughs) Um, I think it's a difficult question to understand what it means to have free will if we are completely determined by the laws of physics. And even if we're not, because there are things... For instance, in quantum mechanics, which is the theory of physics, on the highest energy scales, um, which imply that there's some kind of quantum randomness, so that we're not completely determined. But randomness doesn't really help me either. So okay. either it I doesn't
1: suggest to you that there's space for d- human decisions and for people I don't to change the way how things would go. No,
0: I don't see how it does. Okay. You know, if, if something randomly falls in a certain way, how is that a, a gesture of will? So it's, it's either will has to do with determinism, my will strictly determines an outcome, or it doesn't. So it's very hard. There is no clear way, I don't think, of making sense of an idea of free will in a pinball game of strict determinism or in a game which has elements of random chance – that are just sort of thrown in. Where does my will come in there? So um, it doesn't mean that there isn't a free will. I've often said, maybe someday we'll just discover something. I mean, quantum mechanics was a surprise. General relativity was a surprise, the idea of curved space time. There are limits to mathematics. All of these great discoveries were great surprises. And we shouldn't decide ahead of time what is or isn't true. Um, So it might be that this convincing feeling I have that I'm executing free will. Is actually because I'm observing something that is there. I just can't understand how it's there, or it's a total illusion. It's a very, very convincing illusion, but it's an illusion all the same. So, for you as a
1: scientist, it, you said this convincing feeling. You simply mm-hmm. can't. You can't take that as seriously as a calculation that you can prove, no matter no, what. No, I can't, and, mm-hmm. and
0: no matter what. You know, I, our convincing feeling is that time is absolute. It is a very convincing feeling at times. Uh, right. absolutely. Yeah, right. Our convincing feelings that there should be no limit to how fast you can travel, you just go faster and faster and faster. Right. Our convincing feelings are based on our experiences because of the size that we are, literally, the speed at which we move, the fact that we evolved on a planet under a particular star. So our eyes, for instance, are peak in their perception at yellow, which is the wave bent the sun peaks at and so it's not an accident that our perceptions and our physical environment are connected and so we're limited also by that that makes our intuitions excellent for ordinary things for ordinary life and that's how we evolved that's how our brains evolved and our perceptions evolved was to respond to things like the sun and the earth and these scales and if we were quantum particles we would think quantum mechanics was totally intuitive and it's not intuitive for anybody else. But <laughs> okay. we would think that things fluctuating in and out of existence or not being certain, and, you know, whether they're particles or waves or these kinds of strange things that come out of quantum theory would seem absolutely natural. And what would seem really bizarre is the kind of rigid, clear-cut world that, that we live in. So I guess my answer would be that our intuitions are based on our minds. Our minds are based on our neural structures. Our neural structures evolved on a planet under a sun with very specific conditions. So we reflect the physical world that we evolved from. So so I guess the bottom line is that our intuitions are are good, our intuitions are good for a lot of things, and that's why they're good. It's not a miracle. And so, I mean, as
1: you have come to see things this way through your work as a scientist, I mean, do, do you live differently because of that? Do you raise your children
0: differently because of that? Or is it just a puzzle that you hold, that you carry forward? the question about free will. Uh If I conclude that there's no free will, it doesn't mean that I should go uh, run amok in the streets. I'm no more free to make that choice than I am to make any other (laughs) choice. (laughs) Um, And so there's a practical notion of, of responsibility or civic free will that we uphold when we prosecute somebody or when we hold juries or when we pursue justice that I completely think is a practical notion that we should continue to pursue. It's not like I can choose (laughs) to be irresponsible or responsible because I'm I'm confused about free will. That's being even more confused than me.
1: You can listen again and share this conversation with Jan 11 through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, my 2007 conversation with the physicist Jana Levin. We've been talking about her poetic novel of ideas, A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. It's about two 20th century scientists, Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing, who helped bring us modern computing and who also pressed on the boundaries where science meets great questions of human life. In her novel, Jan Levin writes, "One plus one will always be two. Turing and Gödel's broken lives are mere anecdotes in the margins of their discoveries. But then their discoveries are evidence of our purpose, and their lives are parables on free will. Against indifference, I want to tell their stories." Both Gödel and Turing ultimately committed suicide. Alan Turing had been celebrated in England for helping crack Nazi codes during the Second World War, but he was later imprisoned and chemically castrated for admitting to a consensual homosexual affair. Last year, almost 60 years after his death, Turing finally received a formal pardon from Queen Elizabeth.
0: Well, I I certainly think that Both Turing and Gödel are examples of people living out their purpose. Mm. Even though they came to tragic ends, um, those were people who were committed really to meaningful pursuits. And if you look at Turing, for instance, he was honest, to the end he really believed in being blunt and truthful he he couldn't pretend he couldn't be a fake he hated this idea of fakes and phonies and he couldn't pretend to be somebody he wasn't he couldn't pretend to be heterosexual even if it meant um imprisonment or right. or or lethal poisoning and there is a person who even though he might not have believed in free will, still behaved in a way that I think most people would hold up as being responsible for himself and, and believing in truth. And Gödel also, even though he went very astray in, in his sort of compulsions and his paranoia and his um, imaginings, was very committed to being truthful in a sense, to really following logic where it led him and to not um, deceiving himself or taking an easier path and so i think both of those are admirable examples of people living up to their innate purpose those are
1: two extreme stories and and i do want to say that although there's real tragedy in them you present them in a very human light and and we also see what was wonderful about these these human beings <laughs> and what they brought into the world you know so i don't want to say that you know here here are these stories just of tragedy Right. But, I, you know, just, I mean, a more kind of mundane question is, you know, mm-hmm. how does the messiness of just of, of experience, you know, of all of us, you know, not not just our, what we can know, but just how life unfolds, how does that impinge on kind of the ultimate reality of what we can know
0: and achieve through logic and through science? I myself would would argue that we should never turn away from what nature has to show us, that we should never pretend we don't see it because it's too difficult to confront it. And then I guess that's something that I don't understand about other attitudes that want to disregard certain discoveries because they don't gel with their beliefs. And one of the painful but beautiful things about being a scientist is being able to say it doesn't matter what I believe. I might believe that the universe is a certain age. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And there's something really, I think, thrilling about being committed to that. And so in my own life, I don't feel that that causes me problems. I mean, I've also, in a lot of ways, made easier choices than my two heroes who I wrote about. Right. I, I do have children. They they did not have children. I do have a certain sense of, of having a, a physical comfort around me that they don't have or mm-hmm. didn't have. Or, and in a way, I'm a much more connected person than either of those two people, even though I still— have some of the affinities that they have. Um, maybe that means that I'll never go as far as they went in, in, in my own discoveries. I hope that's not the case, but I can imagine maybe it will be. And maybe there is a trade-off. Maybe sometimes you just have to abandon everything and pursue nothing but that. I'd like to think that if I'm lucky, I'll just get better at honing in on the jugular of things <laughs> so that I can still make progress in discoveries as a scientist or um, have epiphanies as a writer. But yeah, I guess we all just have to find that particular balance. I also sense that you're pursuing questions,
1: beliefs, I don't know, hunches about the meaning of life or or just about what matters to you in a form that calculations simply can't contain or convey that simply can't be captured in numbers.
0: You mean by writing a book, for Yeah, by writing a book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or being engaged with the arts. Right, right. Well, I think that's true. I think that the answers that we're going to get, the discoveries that we're going to make, are going to be in mathematics. But they're going to be meaningless to us (laughs) unless they're integrated into a sort of human perspective where we understand why we ask the questions, what the significance of the answers is for us, and how the world is going to change as a result of having made those discoveries. Mm So I think that probably is true. I think that's why I can't quit one become completely committed to the other yeah, right. Right. <laughs> and continue to sort of go back and forth <laughs> between the two subjects. You know, um reading
1: your your book about two scientists kind of led me on this path of reading other biographies of scientists. So I've been reading James Glick's biography of Newton. Another He's a great very complicated character also. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And something that that reminds me of is, um, you know, how what Newton discovered, you know, it wasn't just important. It absolutely changed the way people thought about the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about, like, you know, what are you working on right now um, that's probably not accessible to most of us? You wouldn't even know that these kinds of discussions are taking place. What are you working on that, that also starts to reshape? the way you see the world around you and the way you move through
0: it. Well, it's funny. People have often asked me when I've been describing the work that I'm doing, they'll say, well, why should I care about that? You know, Mm -hmm. it's a fair question. Mm -hmm. Why Mm -hmm. should I really care about that? I'm telling something about extra dimensions and maybe the universe isn't, three-dimensional, but maybe there are extra-spatial dimensions. It is very abstract. We could do a whole show hammering <laughs> yeah. that out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but supposing we grasp the notion of of multidimensional space and spaces that are fine, people say, why should I care about that? You know, my, my taxes are high. We have a war in Iraq. And these are fair questions. But my feeling is that it changes the world in such a fundamental way. We cannot begin to comprehend the consequences of living in a world after we know certain things about it. I think we cannot imagine the mindset of somebody pre-Copernicus when we thought that the Earth was the center of, of the universe and that the sun and all the celestial bodies orbited us. It's really not that huge a discovery in retrospect. In retrospect, so we orbit around the sun and we take this to be commonplace and there's lots mm-hmm. of planets in our solar system and the sun is just one star out of Billions or hundreds of billions in our galaxy and there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. And we become, you know, little dust motes in the scheme of things. That shift is so colossal in terms of what it did, I think, to our world, our global culture, our worldview that I can't begin to draw simple lines to say this is what happened because of it or that's what happened because because of it. We see ourselves differently and then we see the whole world differently and we begin to think about meaning and all of these questions that you've, you've brought up completely differently than we did before. And um, I feel the same way if we discover that the universe is finite or if we discover that there are additional spatial dimensions. These things will impact us, I think, in ways that we can't just draw simple cause-and-effect arrows. And does it make you react to simple things differently in
1: your life? Because you are closer to, you know, that cutting edge of knowledge right now.
0: Well, I think I will often look at what people... Um, feel is very important and not identify with what they think is very <laughs> <Okay>. important. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think that's probably true. I have a hard time becoming obsessed with internal um, social norms how you're supposed to dress or wear your tie or okay. who's supposed to You know, for me it's so absurd because it's so small and it's so this funny thing that this one species is acting out on this tiny planet and this huge vast cosmos so I think it is sometimes hard for me to participate in certain values that I think other people have <laughs> so in that sense yeah I guess there is a shift of what I think is significant and what I think isn't and if I, if I try to look at that closely I would say the split is things that are totally constructed by human beings. I have a hard time taking seriously, mm-hmm. and things that seem to be uh, natural phenomena that happen universally, I seem to take more seriously. Well, give um, me an example.
1: More I mean, I think sometimes it's hard to draw the line. Give me an example mm-hmm. of something for you that would be totally humanly constructed,
0: and then, and then the other. Um, actually, this is going to sound really dangerous, but uh, even things like who we elect as an official in our government of course i take very seriously our, our our voting process and i'm you know very try to be politically conscious but f- sometimes when i think about it i have to laugh that we're all just agreeing to respect this agreement that this person has been elected for something. And that is really a totally human construct, like we mm. could turn around tomorrow and all choose to behave differently. We're animals that organize in a certain way. So it's not that I completely dismiss it or don't take it seriously, but I think a lot of the things we are acting out are these uh, animalistic things that are, are consequences of our instincts. And they aren't, in some sense, as meaningful to me as the things that will live on after our species comes and goes. Does that make any sense? It, no, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. It's it's perspective that you bring, that you have. That's yeah. different. That's a bit larger. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> cosmic. And it doesn't mean that, I, that I'm dismissing things as unimportant either. You know, I mm-hmm. take very seriously what's going on in the world right now, and I'm really pained by what's going on in the world. But my perspective is to look at it as just animals acting out ruthless instincts and unable to control themselves, even though other people think that they're being very heady and intellectual. So... I do believe, and I, I mean I think I know this that that something d- deep
1: is met in human beings in in a sense of being part of lo- something larger than oneself, being part of something big. And, well, I think um, we
0: are part of something larger than ourselves. Right. I think, I think you we do, know yeah. that for sure. And it's a remarkable thing to know that for sure. We we definitely are made up of material that was synthesized in the cores of stars, a previous generation of stars. I mean, we literally are made up of something larger than us. You know, we come from a very specific series of events in this universe mm-hmm. um, that if they hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. But I think
1: some people might listen to this and feel um, that if you really internalize this, that possibly everything is predetermined, that we, in fact, are not free in any way, um, that we are behaving like animals, even when we think we're our most civilized, you know, that, that, li- that life would somehow be robbed of joy and hope and transcendence. Mm-hmm. I don't experience you as a person without joy, hope, and transcendence. <laughs> no, I
0: don't feel that way at all. I have a, a 15-month-old daughter and a 4-year-old son, and the overwhelming feelings I have for them, even if I believe that their instinct do not fade one bit because of that. It matters to me not at all that um, I have evolved to feel that way. It doesn't take anything away from me whatsoever. That feeling is as real, as strong, as beautiful, as meaningful Um, as it is for somebody who believes otherwise. Mm. And I've never really understood the argument that it takes the shine off of things, when for me, it really doesn't take the shine off of things. Um, For instance, let's say somebody said that they had a belief system in which it was simply posited that carbon came out of, I don't know, a blue sky one day. That wouldn't make me feel any more meaning about who I was in the world. It, it feels much richer to me to imagine that a cold, empty cosmos collapses with stars and stars burn and shine and they make carbon in their cores and then they throw them out again and that carbon collects and and forms another planet and another star and and amino acids evolve and, and then human beings arise. I mean, that's to me a really beautiful narrative.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with physicist and novelist Jan Levin. It seems to me that there's so much beguiling kind of mystery in science right now. I mean, um, even language, like... Dark matter. What is it? It's, we can be pretty corny too. There's all but,
0: kinds of acronyms. Right, right. But it's so
1: I mean, it's certainly it's it is very, very mysterious, whether that's the same way um, religious people talk about mystery or not. There's real mm-hmm. mystery in it. Isn't that
0: right? I think the secret you are uncovering is that scientists often share a very childlike wonder for the world. And so a lot of the language that we invent about the universe reflects um, that kind of childlike experience. So there is really, um, at some level, that feeling of excitement over learning about the universe and and wanting it to sound a certain way, you know, (laughs) wanting the language to reflect the mystery and, um, and the magnitude of what we're learning. So I think that's what you're picking up on.
1: I know that you're now working on um, the idea of whether the universe is infinite or finite. And somewhat against the grain, you are
0: pondering whether the universe is finite. Explain that to me. Uh, there are a handful of people for, for several years ago who started getting interested in this ar- around, around the world. And, I, and what it would mean is, is it's similar to the idea of the earth. If you' If you're standing as I am in New York City and you walk in a straight line, and then you swim in a straight line, and then you walk again and swim again, you keep going in a straight line as far as you possibly can go, you will end up coming back to New York City because the Earth <laughs> okay. is, is not infinite, it is also uh, not, uh, uh, it doesn't have an edge off of which you would just sort of fall off. And so in space time, it might be something like that. I travel in a rocket ship in several different directions and, and and I find myself coming back to where I started. I think I left the Earth behind me, I see it go away behind me, and as I approach some planet in front of me, I really Realize, whoa, that's the Earth again. And you've
1: made this interesting observation that several times in history, when science has acknowledged limits, right, you know, you'd be putting finitude to infinity. That that in mm-hmm. fact has made great leaps forward possible.
0: Yes, it's a funny thing. It doesn't mean that we throw up our hands and say we can't know anything. You know, mathematics has limits. Oh, no, we don't do mathematics anymore, or, or the speed of light is a fundamental limit. We stop doing physics. It's really been exactly the opposite. Mathematics has limits, and somehow that leads people to invent a computer. The speed of light has a finite limit, which is what Einstein proposed, and he invents special relativity and eventually a theory of curved spacetime based on this observation. So it opens up this huge way of thinking about the world when we kind of accept our limits and and just move on. Um, And quantum mechanics was the other example where quantum mechanics implies a fundamental uncertainty in what we can know about physical reality. And by accepting this we make these enormous discoveries. So, um, so I think similarly, if we come to accept that maybe the universe isn't infinite. I mean, Einstein had this funny thing, which I'm probably overusing because I've said a bunch of times, but he said only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. <laughs> and then he said, I'm not so sure about the universe. So um, <laughs> he knew that it was conceivable that the universe wasn't infinite, but he wasn't sure how to go about it. And only later did we understand how to kind of actually handle it. And if we were to discover that the universe was it, I think it would, again, be something like uh, like what happened with Copernicus or like understanding that there's there was a Big Bang. I think it's hard for us to remember what it was like before the discovery of the Big Bang itself. That's just such a part of our worldview now. That there was a beginning point. That there was a beginning, that the universe hasn't always been here, that it isn't permanent mm-hmm. and, and um, unending and unalterable. Right. And I just want to come back just
1: finally to... Um Something that... Uh, th- this is a nuance of... We, we spoke at the very beginning about Kurt Gödel, this uh, one of the two scientists you wrote about in your novel, and um, he said there are things that are true that mathematics... There are things that mathematics cannot prove. They might still be true, but the idea was that you would have to go outside mathematics to know that. Um, mm-hmm. And e- e- you use phrases like, we can't see the logic of them until we step outside the logical framework. You said something like... We have to look at them out of the corner of our eye.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And to me, that again seems so resonant with with life as I know it. And I just, you know, I wonder if that's a kind of idea that you also find you can translate into other aspects of knowledge and experience.
0: Well, I definitely think it's the reason the book was structured as a novel. I try to stick as close to fact as possible. It's not the facts that I'm changing. It's the approach to the facts, and it's a sort of confession that no matter how I list these facts, I am somehow not able to get at the truth, The truth doesn't just drop out like a theorem if I follow certain logical steps. Mm. And I think maybe it's saying something also about maybe my own approach to science, no matter how much I follow these logical steps, no matter how much I make real discoveries that will be unambiguous, I hope, mm. <laughs> they're in some sense my approach to the truth in the, in the bigger uh, sense of the meaning of the word will always be a little bit out of the corner of my eye <laughs> or the visceral experience of what it really means or um, uh, what the implications are. Mm. There are no true things, really, out, except for things as crisp as 1 plus 1 equals 2 that are unambiguously true. <laughs> right. and, um, and yet we, we know we're getting closer to the truth even though we can't always prove it.
1: Jan Levin is a Guggenheim Fellow and Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University. She's the author of two books, How the Universe Got Its Spots and the novel A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. To listen again or share this show with Jan Eleven, go to onbeing.org. And you can follow everything we do through our weekly email newsletter. Just click the newsletter link to subscribe on any page at onbeing.org. Onbeing is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Michael El Mariah Helgeson, and Joshua Ray. And is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
2: On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.